Due to the graphic nature of this dictator's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of slavery, torture, gore, and murder. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. In the summer of 1960, Larry Devlin cautiously strolled through Leopoldville, the capital of the newly independent Democratic Republic of the Congo. The air was thick with humidity and a feeling that violence could break out at any moment. Devlin was a CIA field officer sent to keep an eye on the Congo and prevent it from falling into the hands of the Soviet Union. As the Cold War entered its second decade, Africa was becoming a new battleground. As Devlin turned a corner, he spotted a man aiming a pistol at another man dressed in military fatigues. Though Devlin didn't know the identity of either of them, his instinct took over. Before the gunmen could fire, Devlin tackled him to the ground. Remembering his own army training, Devlin pulled the shooter's hand against the pistol's trigger guard to break his finger. While Devlin had neutralized the gunmen, the fight attracted the attention of two armed guards nearby. They ran over and began beating Devlin, assuming him as the attacker. The victim of the almost assassination called his guards off. It wasn't until the victim turned that he realized he had stopped the assassination of the country's future leader, Mobutu Sese Seiko. But in doing so, Devlin inadvertently brought the nation three decades of death and destruction. Welcome to Dictators, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Today we're looking at the life of one of Africa's most notoriously corrupt dictators, Mobutu Sese Seko of the Democratic Republic of the Congo. We'll explore the Congo's brutal colonial history at the hands of King Leopold II of Belgium and the independence movement that rose in the wake of World War II. Then we'll dive into Mobutu's rise from obscurity to take over a fledgling revolution and how his 30-year reign brought widespread corruption and fraud. Coming up, we head to Africa. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy 
taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. The disastrous effects of Mobutu Sese Seko's rule still linger today in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. However, the seeds of corruption were planted a century earlier by another brutal leader, King Leopold II of Belgium. Unlike other European nations of the mid-19th century, Belgium had no colonies of its own. Belgium was a relatively young nation and had yet to leave a major mark on the globe. But King Leopold II wanted to change that. In 1879, Leopold heard about the African adventures of explorer Henry Morton Stanley. After reading Stanley's description of the Congo region, Leopold hired Stanley to conduct a reconnaissance mission for potential colonization. When Stanley returned, he confirmed Leopold's suspicions. The region had an abundance of natural resources like rubber, ivory, iron, and copper all important assets for industrialization. After Stanley's report, King Leopold wasted no time staking his claim on the Congo. He ignored the fact that the region was home to various indigenous peoples. In fact, for nearly 90,000 years, the Congo was inhabited by nearly 200 nomadic tribes, which were some of the oldest on Earth. But Leopold didn't care. He wanted his colony no matter the cost. In 1884, a delegation of European powers gathered in Berlin to discuss how they would divide Africa for themselves. During the convention, Leopold proposed taking over the Congo, an area 76 times larger than Belgium. But Belgium was a constitutional monarchy, and as the monarch, Leopold technically wasn't representing the government. Rather, he was asking for the Congo to belong to him personally. The specifics didn't matter much to the other European powers, so they ultimately gave Leopold their blessing. And the Congo Free State was born. Belgian profiteers poured into the colony and pillaged the Free State's natural resources. Initially, they set their sights on ivory, used for things like piano keys or decorations. Before long, though, they turned their attention to a much more lucrative resource, rubber. At the end of the 19th century, the automobile rose in popularity and rubber was needed to manufacture tires. So the Belgians quickly built an infrastructure geared toward rubber cultivation in the Congo Free State. And by 1896, they exported almost 3 million pounds of it. Sadly, the transition toward rubber extraction had a major effect on the Congo's natural habitats and indigenous peoples. Under Leopold's directives, the Belgians enslaved the native Congolese and forced them to cultivate rubber at a brutal pace. If the Congolese didn't meet their arbitrary quotas, they were starved and tortured, including forced amputations. Historian Adam Hochschild estimates that during the reign of King Leopold, the native population in the Congo Free State declined by at least half. This equates to a death toll of around 10 million. The Belgians justified this genocide with a racist ideology they called the white man's burden. 
They convinced themselves that it was their responsibility to civilize the indigenous peoples. And this sadistic philosophy made King Leopold extremely wealthy from Congolese labor. Hochschild estimates that Leopold made over a billion dollars from the region. He used those profits to finance a lavish lifestyle replete with castles, lakeside villas, and dozens of teenage mistresses across Europe. And in a flourish of braggadocio, he also commissioned the Royal Museum for Central Africa in Belgium. This museum displayed the spoils of his pillaging and used enslaved Congolese men and women as part of an exhibit. However, most Belgians were horrified by the sight of people forced into captivity for their alleged enjoyment. As such, Belgians grew to resent the king for his treatment of the Congolese. But it wasn't only in his own nation where the king was losing respect. In the early 20th century, journalists from around the world reported on the horrors committed in Leopold's name. By 1908, he was treated as a global pariah. Rather than continue damaging his reputation, Leopold sold the Congo Free State to the Belgian government. They changed the colony's name to the Belgian Congo. However, the Congolese continued to face harsh treatment by the new administration. The colony remained completely segregated, so any infrastructure the Belgians built was still out of reach for the indigenous population. For the next 50 years, the Belgian Congo remained stuck in a cycle of racism, poverty, and oppression. It was during this era when Joseph Desire Mobutu was born. When he arrived in October 1930, Mobutu's family lived in rather unusual circumstances for the time. While his mother was a homemaker, his father was a cook for a Belgian judge. Ironically, this greatly benefited the young Mobutu. Normally, the Belgians would not have interacted with their domestic workers. However, the judge's wife took a shine to the precocious Mobutu. Despite their segregated society, the judge's wife taught Mobutu how to read, write, and speak French. He also accompanied her on errands, where she held his hand in public, a sight that must have shocked anyone who crossed their path. Unfortunately, the rare favorable treatment didn't last long. When Mobutu was eight years old, his father died, which meant the family had to fend for themselves. For the next few years, his mother moved the family around the colony while Mobutu alternated between working and attending Catholic schools. Eventually, he was sent to live with an uncle who recognized the boy's intellect and allowed him to attend school full-time. Mobutu's intelligence quickly distinguished him as one of the smartest pupils in his class, while his mischievous attitude marked him as the most rebellious. He was both a class clown and a contrarian, constantly arguing with teachers. Though his antics annoyed the Belgian instructors, they usually let them slide. But that lenient attitude didn't last forever. In 1949, 19-year-old Mobutu sought a little adventure and stowed away on a ship bound for the capital, Leopoldville. When Mobutu returned home from his excursion, he was promptly expelled for poor behavior. In this era, delinquent students were often siphoned off to the military, and Mobutu was no exception. 
he ended up joining the colonial armed forces called the Force Publique. While the assignment was meant as a punishment, the discipline and regimentation of the military did wonders for Mobutu. It gave him a kind of stability he had never experienced before. He embraced it wholeheartedly, and discipline soon became the hallmark of his personality. However, while Mobutu displayed an aptitude for the military structure, he didn't have a military mind. Rather, his interests shifted toward journalism. So in 1956, he left the military to become a journalist, and the move brought him directly into the heart of a revolution. In the wake of World War II, many European nations changed their attitude toward African colonies and began to withdraw their colonial administrations. Seizing on this shift, movements demanding independence sprung up around the continent, and the Congo was no different. Through the late 1950s, agitated Congolese citizens organized demonstrations and protests. They even formed an independent political party known as the National Congolese Movement. Initially, Mobutu took a neutral journalistic stance toward the movement. However, as he chronicled their activism and met the leaders, he couldn't help but get swept up by their rhetoric. Sometime around 1958, Mobutu dedicated himself to Congolese independence. With his new fervent commitment to the cause, it didn't take long for him to fall into the orbit of the movement's leader, Patrice Lumumba. And under Lumumba's tutelage, Mobutu would go from an obscure journalist to a gold-digging politician who was willing to stab anyone in the back for profit. Coming up, Mobutu seizes control of the movement and the country. Hi, listeners. It's Vanessa from the Spotify original from Parcast, Cults. Next on our series, a four-part deep dive into the religious movement known as the Moonies. Sushi, mass weddings, political coups. Discover the many business ventures, beliefs, and scandals of this headline-making sect. This is one special you do not want to miss. You can also catch up on hundreds of classic episodes and new ones each week by following Cults free on Spotify. Find out what turns a natural-born leader into a vessel for wreaking havoc. Enjoy a new episode of Cults every Tuesday, free and only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. In the mid-1950s, Joseph Desiree Mobutu left the Congo's Belgian-led army for a career in journalism. Though he embraced the stability of life in the barracks, he didn't see the army as his future. Instead, he reported on the whirlwind of the Congolese independence movement. Though he tried to remain objective, 28-year-old Mobutu was swept up in the revolutionary fervor, especially once he met the movement's charismatic leader, Patrice Lumumba. 
Intelligent and highly ambitious, Lumumba easily rallied the masses with his heated rhetoric about horrendous working conditions and poverty. As Mobutu continued to hang around Lumumba, he noticed that the activist leader needed a right-hand man, someone who was organized and professional. So, around 1959, Mobutu thrust himself into the role by convincing him that he should serve as Lumumba's personal assistant. Lumumba agreed, and Mobutu immediately made his presence felt. He anticipated Lumumba's every whim, crafted his speeches, and dealt with the bureaucratic minutiae that his boss despised. But in managing the inner workings of the movement, Mobutu realized that an independent Congo wouldn't be all that different from the colonial one, thanks to rampant corruption. Even though Lumumba claimed to despise corruption, he was more than happy to accept bribes. He didn't mind taking cash from foreign businessmen who didn't want their rubber or mining interests threatened. In Mobutu's eyes, Lumumba and the other freedom fighters may have espoused a desire for Congolese sovereignty, but they were only in it to enrich themselves. Mobutu realized that economic equality could likely never be achieved in the country. Even if independence succeeded, whoever seized power would only use it to make their own fortune. And if that were the case, he might as well be the one to get rich. All he needed to do was seize power. Luckily for him, the winds of change were blowing in his favor. In January 1960, the Belgian government announced that they would grant the Congo its independence. However, this came with a caveat. The Belgians kept control over much of the Congo's infrastructure, military, and lucrative mining industries. After Belgium ceded government control, elections were held in May, and Patrice Lumumba became the Republic of the Congo's first independent prime minister. As he built his government, Lumumba appointed Mobutu army chief of staff. Finally, on June 30, 1960, Lumumba, Mobutu, and the new Congolese government took control over the nation, and the Congo fell into chaos. Though Lumumba had won the election, there were various political parties vying for control. It seemed independence did not bring unity. The turmoil meant the fate of the Congo's resources was uncertain, which inspired the United States to jump into the fray. As Europe decolonized Africa, the continent became a new front for the Cold War. The newly independent nations were ripe to be exploited, and the U.S. didn't want the Congo or the rest of Africa succumbing to communism under the Soviet Union. More importantly, the Americans didn't want the Congo's untapped resources falling into Soviet hands. So the CIA sent Larry Devlin to monitor the situation. Once he was on the ground in the Republic of the Congo, Devlin bore witness to Patrice Lumumba's disastrous administration. Despite the initial chaos, most Congolese citizens viewed Lumumba as a promising new leader. But after only a few weeks in office, he ran afoul of just about everyone. First, Lumumba tried to organize the assassinations of his perceived rivals, including recent allies. 
Then he publicly insulted the Belgian officials working with him to ensure a peaceful transition. He even infuriated his own military by refusing to raise salaries. Nobody was exempt from Lumumba's criticism or demands. It seemed Lumumba was becoming more trouble than he was worth. However, the final nail in Lumumba's coffin came from the Belgians. In order to protect their mining interests, the Belgian government organized a secession movement among Congolese miners. Lumumba asked the Soviet Union to help put down the rebellion. This was a red flag to the United States, who assumed that Lumumba was going full communist. So the U.S. government decided they needed to take Lumumba out before the Congo officially became a communist state. And they had just the man to do it, Joseph Desire Mobutu. At some point in the chaotic summer of 1960, CIA field officer Larry Devlin saved Mobutu from assassination. This provided the connection for the U.S. agency to approach Mobutu about overthrowing his prime minister. Soon after, in another clandestine meeting, Mobutu asked Devlin about overthrowing Patrice Lumumba with a military coup. Mobutu seemingly had no issues with taking out his boss. The country was in turmoil, and this was a possible solution. Better yet, here was a chance to finally make some money off of the chaos. Mobutu told Devlin he needed assurance that the CIA would fund the operation and back him temporarily when he took over. And Devlin agreed. On September 14, 1960, Mobutu turned on Lumumba, having him arrested and imprisoned. Unfortunately for Mobutu, Lumumba remained popular with much of the public, including his prison guards. With their help, Lumumba escaped prison twice. But Lumumba couldn't stay on the run forever. In January 1961, Mobutu's troops captured him again. This time, they handed Lumumba over to the Belgian-backed secessionists, who took him to a remote area and executed him. The assassination of Patrice Lumumba should have signaled the beginning of Mobutu's reign. However, in the wake of Lumumba's downfall, Mobutu remained at his post as army chief of staff. The government, though, was weak and ineffectual. For the next several years, various rebellions by secessionist groups continued to sow chaos. And even though Mobutu was able to crush those rebellions, the government did nothing to prevent future ones. Frustrated, Mobutu took matters into his own hands. On November 25, 1965, 35-year-old Mobutu seized control of the country with the full support of the military and the CIA. And with that, Mobutu was now in charge of the Democratic Republic of the Congo. After his bloodless coup, Mobutu's quest for power was motivated by one thing, wealth. He wasn't looking to create a socialist paradise or a capitalist nation. He wanted nothing more than to enrich himself. However, he knew that if he was too obvious, his reign would likely come to an abrupt end in another coup. So he disguised his greed by justifying his power grab as a means to unite the Congolese people. As such, 
he sought to reclaim the country's identity through Zarianization, or the Campaign for Authenticity. This years-long process involved renaming almost everything that could be tied to Belgian colonialism. First, he changed the country's name from the Democratic Republic of the Congo to Zaire. Then he changed his own name from Joseph Desire Mobutu to the far less humble Mobutu Sese Seko Kuku Nbandu Wazabanga. This translates to the all-powerful warrior who, because of his endurance and inflexible will to win, goes from conquest to conquest, leaving fire in his wake. Mobutu knew if he was to maintain power and ultimately enrich himself, he couldn't let anyone challenge his new state ideology. He introduced the country's only political party, called the Popular Movement of the Revolution. The party's ideology was neither right, left, or center. Its sole purpose was to promote nationalism and Zairean authenticity. And if anyone refused to fully embrace these principles, Mobutu had them viciously punished. On multiple occasions, Mobutu's soldiers arrested men suspected of plotting coups and publicly hanged them. But this was only the beginning of the horrific violence. According to author Michaela Wrong, one rebel leader was, quote, tortured to death by soldiers. His eyes were pulled from their sockets, his genitals ripped off, his limbs amputated one by one. What remained was dumped in the river. As Mobutu brutally suppressed dissent, he also extended Zarianization to the country's economic policies. Though he wanted to pilfer Zaire's riches personally, he also sought to redistribute a portion of that wealth to his countrymen. Unfortunately, Mobutu had no clue of what he was doing economically. In the early 1970s, Mobutu seized most of the European-owned businesses and just handed them over to Zaireans. However, the average citizen knew nothing about running a business. After all, they had no authority to start a private enterprise when the Belgians controlled the region, so Zairians had no experience. But Mobutu didn't care, since Zairianization required that his people become self-sufficient. While he reallocated private businesses, he made sure that the most profitable industries, like mining and rubber, were regulated under his authority. Portions of the profits went directly to Mobutu's personal bank account. But it wasn't just Mobutu who was growing rich by skimming the nation's wealth. The men he had put in charge of the mining industries were just as corrupt. For example, Mobutu allowed his cronies to take diamonds from the country's supply and sell them as they wished. On the streets of Zaire or the diamond markets in Antwerp, it didn't matter. All Mobutu required was his cut of the profits. As the money rolled in, Mobutu believed it was time for Zaire to be recognized on the world stage. And in 1974, he found a way to bring that recognition, thanks to boxing. The Zairean authenticity movement echoed the spirit of black pride that had swept the United States since the 1960s. One of the leading figures during this period was boxer Muhammad Ali, 
Ali agreed to fight then-heavyweight champion George Foreman as a way to promote black pride throughout the world. Unfortunately, the match promoter couldn't secure a venue or funding. Sensing an image-building opportunity, Mobutu agreed to host the match in Zaire on October 30, 1974. It became known as the Rumble in the Jungle. Staging a title fight is enormously expensive, and the host often needs a guarantee that a match will recoup all of its costs. Though Mobutu agreed to a cut of the ticket sales, it was still a hefty financial risk. But it was worth it for the publicity. As luck should have it, the Rumble in the Jungle became one of the most significant sporting events in history. It put Mobutu and Zaire on the global stage, generating immensely favorable publicity. Mobutu relished in the adulation. After the turmoil of the 1960s, his Zarianization project had finally created the image of stability. Little did he realize the cracks in his regime were already opening. Coming up, Mobutu grows rich while the bottom falls out in Zaire. Now back to the story. In October 1974, 34-year-old Mabutu Seseseko made Zaire famous with a boxing match. After the instability of the 1960s, the success of the Rumble in the Jungle finally brought Mabutu and Zaire international acclaim. Unfortunately, the prosperity of Zaire was a facade. Just as Zaire enjoyed its newfound fame, Mobutu's absurd economic policies were about to send the nation into a tailspin. Before and during the early part of Mobutu's reign, Zaire's major industries, such as cobalt, rubber, diamonds, and copper, were immensely profitable. The economy was growing at an annual rate of 7%. However, in 1974, the same year as the Rumble in the Jungle, that growth peaked. And thanks to Mobutu's extravagant spending, declining profits for Zaire's exports and his giving businesses over to inexperienced Zaireans, the economy took a turn for the worse. Most of the appropriated businesses closed when no product was left, which resulted in a shortage of basic staples and inflation. Yet Mobutu didn't worry, or even pretend to care. High off the success of the rumble in the jungle, Mobutu was wholly focused on taking as much of the nation's wealth for himself as possible. But to some extent, Mobutu was cunning about his blatant theft. In order to keep some people happy, he bribed any perceived political enemy who might try to usurp him. He often used violence to quell unrest, but it was a lot simpler to just buy them off. This has even led author Michaela Wrong to suggest that Mobutu may have been the originator of the modern kleptocracy, where politicians use their power to grow rich. To protect his corruption from scrutiny, Mobutu surrounded himself with sycophants. They also benefited from bribery and had absolutely no incentive to stop him. Instead, they doctored ledgers and turned a blind eye to his increasingly reckless spending, especially on real estate. The most ostentatious home in Mobutu's growing portfolio was a palace built deep in the rainforest. 
It was situated almost a thousand miles from Zaire's capital, making it astronomically expensive to get materials or machinery there. To solve this problem, Mobutu built a commercial airport. It contained a runway large enough to accommodate a Concorde jet, which Mobutu regularly leased from Air France. Once the palace was finished, he used it to host Pope John Paul II, several French presidents, and countless businessmen. All of them were lavishly waited upon by a full-time staff composed of hundreds of impeccably dressed locals. The opulent home was dubbed the Versailles of the Jungle, and today it is worth over $400 million. By 1980, though, Mobutu's theft had become so shameless that the billion-dollar mining conglomerates were starting to lose money. Instead of this profit loss slowing his spending, Mobutu simply dipped into the country's operating budget. On two different occasions, Mobutu took hundreds of millions of dollars from the treasury and just didn't tell anybody. This left his yes-men scrambling to make up an excuse for the missing funds. Not surprisingly, the consequences of Mobutu's greed hit ordinary citizens the hardest. With money going everywhere except back into Zaire, the colonial-era machines and infrastructure broke down. Meanwhile, the economy tanked. For almost two decades, Mobutu made zero effort to stabilize it. As a result, inflation skyrocketed. Eventually, shopkeepers stopped putting the incredibly high prices on their items because the money was worth almost nothing. By the start of the 1990s, Zaire was hanging on by a thread. Infrastructure was in decay and the country was running out of money. Unfortunately, the nation also wasn't receiving any international aid. In the past, Mobutu experienced fairly warm relations with the United States and Western Europe. This was ostensibly because Mobutu remained aligned with the West during the Cold War. As a result, he'd once received plenty of foreign aid, as well as loans from financial institutions like the World Bank and the IMF. Of course, he pocketed all of these funds, but the aid kept coming. However, as the Cold War came to an end, the West changed its attitude toward Mobutu's blatant embezzling and his one-party rule. Before long, every international aid agency cut off funding and demanded that he transform Zaire into a more democratic state. Seeing the writing on the wall, Mobutu acquiesced. In April 1990, he announced that he was ending one-party rule. He finally allowed opposition parties back into Zairean politics. Almost immediately, protests against Mobutu's authoritarian rule broke out in Zaire. And as opposition groups tried to wrestle power away from the aging Mobutu, he responded with force. Despite mass arrests and extrajudicial killings, the citizenry refused to back down. But in a strange twist of fate, it was a neighboring country's tragic turmoil that finally brought change to Zaire. By 1994, the nearby nation of Rwanda had been embroiled in a civil war for four years. That spring, a minority extremist group massacred nearly a million ethnic Rwandans. Even more shocking, 
there was evidence that the government was complicit in the genocide, while no international force intervened in the massacre. Eventually, the leadership stabilized in Rwanda and the civil war came to an end. However, hundreds of thousands of Rwandan refugees from the persecuted groups had fled to Zaire. In Rwanda, the persecuted Tutsi people formed a rebel group that came to power and established a government. So while Tutsi refugees returned to their homelands from Zaire, many Hutus stayed, fearing for their future in Rwanda. In 1996, Rwanda came for those refugees in Zaire, attempting to kill the Hutu people and wipe out the perpetrators of the Tutsi genocide. Soon, the persecuted Rwandans living in Zaire turned their sights on Mobutu. Now, Zaireans and Rwandans were united in their desire to oust Mobutu. And in the fall of 1996, Zaire descended into civil war. However, as the violence broke out, Mobutu was already out of the country. He was in Switzerland, receiving treatment for terminal prostate cancer. Taking advantage of his absence, the rebel forces swept through the country. Since Mobutu wasn't present to control the military, the rebels encountered zero resistance as they made their way toward the capital city of Kinshasa. Fearing that the situation would devolve into further chaos, several African leaders attempted to broker peace, but no agreement materialized. So, in May 1997, Mobutu went into exile in Morocco. Because his cancer was so advanced, Mobutu didn't even make it through the year. On September 7, 1997, 66-year-old Mobutu Sese Seko died. Following Mobutu's death, the various rebel groups turned against each other as they vied for control. As a result, Zaire plunged into another civil war, which lasted from 1998 until 2003. The conflict also spread into neighboring nations, and by 2008, it had resulted in nearly six million deaths. Today, Zaire is known as the Democratic Republic of the Congo. The economy has largely stabilized, foreign investment has returned, and the country's infrastructure is on the mend. In recent years, the DRC's untapped minerals like diamonds, cobalt, and copper are estimated to be worth $24 trillion. However, the government still appears to be plagued by corruption. Leaders have used rebel groups to squash dissent, including a failed coup in February 2022. As is often the case, stability is difficult to find after decades of authoritarian rule. Without question, Mobutu Sese Seko was one of the most corrupt dictators in African history. Growing up in the impoverished Belgian colony, Mobutu was committed to leave his life of squalor by any means necessary. Unfortunately, that meant embezzling Zaire for everything it was worth and letting the country decay. His reign lasted for 30 years, but it set the country back by many more than that. At the time of his death, Mobutu's stolen wealth was estimated to be between four and seven billion dollars. He'd even eclipsed the colonizing King Leopold II as the personification of greed, corruption, 
and neglect in the Congo. Thanks for listening to Dictators. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Dictators is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound design by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Nick Johnson, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. This episode of Dictators was written by Tony Goodman, edited by Joe Guerra and Andrew Messer, fact-checked by Mary Mathis, researched by Bradley Klein, and produced by Travis Clark. Dictators stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner. Dictators.